When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's Off-Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Spring training is right around the corner. So come for the games and have a ball in Arizona. With world-class resorts, unbeatable dining and nightlife, amazing scenery, and endless outdoor adventure. Make your visit unforgettable. Plan your getaway at myspringtraining.com. Hi, this is Wadi Wachtel. You're listening to Pantheon Podcasts. History in five songs. With host Martin Popoff, a production of Pantheon Podcasts. Let's rock out with Martin. Hello again, Martin Popoff here, back for another episode of History and Five Songs with Martin Popoff. We are part of the Vast Pantheon Podcast Network. We are available on Spotify, iTunes, over 40 platforms, uh, anywhere you uh, go to hear your podcasts. Okay, so number one, um, I've called this episode Tom Werman and Twisted Sister, episode 55, Tom Werman and Twisted Sister. Now, this isn't really going to be all about Twisted Sister. Uh, this is more about the role of producers. Uh, Tom Werman is a great example to debate this. Um, we've already had episodes on Rick Rubin and Martin Birch, so you can consider this a Tom Werman episode. But uh, but a lot of different issues are going to come up in, in this one. Um, We've got an email, uh, an industry email group where we've had a hot debate uh, recently about, uh, you know, the war between Dee Snyder and J.J. French and uh, Tom Werman over the production of Stay Hungry. So much so that they went and re-recorded the album as Still Hungry later on. Uh, We're going to talk about that a little more when we get to Twisted Sister. But um, yeah, so this Tom Werman character, pretty interesting story here. And, uh, and, you know, every, every example that we pick here of these five is going to bring up kind of a different uh, dynamic, a different issue when it comes to uh, producers. So, so Tom's a guy, uh, I, I love the guy, he's a great guy, I've interviewed him a few times, you know, I've written books on Blue Oyster Cult, books on Ted Nugent, I can't remember when I talked to him first, but, you know, it's, it's part of these projects um, uh, to begin with early on. Uh, he, he runs a bed and breakfast now, he hasn't been producing uh, for a long time, but, um, but no, I talked to him first for one of those projects, um, 
and uh, and it's interesting. He sent me. Uh, he he made this uh, double CD called uh, what is it? Tom Werman's greatest hits. Tom Werman's uh, Tom Werman greatest misses, and it's in in a nice one of those double jewel case uh, double CDs. And he's got a picture of all the things that kind of did well out there in the marketplace on the front, and he's in the middle of it smiling. And then on the back, uh, he's he's kind of got a grumpy frown. And and these are the albums he he produced that he said didn't do so well. So we'll we'll talk about that a little later, but. So yeah, so there's this big debate on about Tom Werman. Was he a good producer? Was he a bad producer? And really, this is all wrapped up uh, somewhat in, um, you know, it's two things, right? It's it's the sound of these records, um, what you think of the records he produced, uh, you know, sonically. But is it? Because is that a producer's role? Well, you, you know, we don't know. Uh, Tom Werman is one of these guys who says, I don't touch the board. So he's a little bit like a Rick Rubin. He's not an engineering producer. Um so how much did he have to do with that? Uh, we're going to see in a, in a couple of quotes later on, uh, you know, that he feels he almost didn't have that much to do with the picking of the songs either. So he's kind of a, an arrangement guy, um, which is a vague thing. So, you know, how, how important is uh, the sound of the record after all these years? That's what we debate when we talk about a producer. But is that a producer's thing? We're, we're also going to hear that he, he worked with some big engineers. Is it the success of the records? Well, Tom Werman's got a lot uh, to say, um, you know, a, a lot to defend there because he's done great with these albums. He, he's basically these albums he's done for a lot of these bands are some of their biggest albums. Um, so, okay, I just wanted to open then with a, a little bit of a, a quote from Tom. Um, I don't know what this proves, but anyways, I'm going to tell it to you because this was one of the first things I remember asking him years and years ago. Is there a Tom Werman sound? And he says, if there was, I would like to think that it was a fluid locomotive rhythm and a prominence of rhythm guitar, double rhythm guitar licks around which songs are based. That's the way I listen to music. The strongest thing to me about rock and roll is the good elementary, catchy basic guitar lick as as in Girls, 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 as in Cat Scratch Fever, and a number of songs that were big. Everyone knows what a hook is, but I preferred to build a song around a real driving guitar hook. Probably the best example of that is Easy Top. I love their drive. I always try to be, uh, I always try uh, to get good solid drive in the song. Um, and he says, uh, so how do you achieve that? He goes, certainly by doubling, but by helping it roll along through percussion, through reinforcement, through other instruments, playing accents for the beat. And it's kind of important. You know, numbers of ways you can do it and tailoring the drums to serve the guitar rather than vice versa. That is important uh, when we talk about Tom. Um, and this, I find, is a very telling group about this whole production thing. He says, well, you know, if you ask one member of the group, they'll say one thing, and another member will say another thing. Okay, that's one key thing. The producer is damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. There's no question about it. If it's a stiff, it's the producer's fault. If it's a hit, it was always in the music and in the songs. Super important. And he goes, you know, everyone hates the producer. Now, that's not entirely true. Um, you know, as as we've seen with a, a lot of guys we've talked about across this show, um, you know, elliptically uh, within the episodes. But hey, look, everybody loved Martin Birch. I, I don't I don't, I can't recall a bad thing to say about Martin Birch. Rick Rubin, on the other hand, you know, the big complaint is he doesn't really do much work. He's not there even part of the time. Right. But Tom definitely has his detractors uh, and a lot of detractors over time. And like I say, this was all spurred on by somehow this this new debate happened with with D, you know, um, 
uh, being derisive about Tom and and stay hungry. Again, we're going to talk about that as we move on. But let's let's play our first uh, selection of the episode. Take a listen to this. This is Cheap Trick with Southern Girls. All right, so here we have Tom early on, September 1977. He did not produce the first album, but here he is coming in, and this is the quintessential Tom Werman sound, I think. Um, you get this on uh, you get this on Ted Nugent, which we're going to talk about in a second, but you also get it on uh, the Molly Hatched albums, which I don't think are too particularly good produced. Tom came in from the A&RN, from the CBS end. I can't remember the story exactly, but he had a little bit to do with Boston getting signed and, and, and on its way. He wasn't a producer on that project, that first Boston album, but but he wanted to be a producer all along, and he's coming in uh, as, as production. He's already done Ted Nugent's Free For All. Um, but here he is with um, with uh, with the In Color album. Now, you know the other amazing thing he did. So, so here's his track record, right? So, so he does In Color. He does uh, Heaven Tonight, and he does Dream Police. He does basically their biggest, biggest, biggest albums. You know, barring barring the live album uh, in in their Budokan. Um, which you know isn't really a production, I suppose. Um, but uh, but yeah. So what does he say here about Cheap Trick? I'll give you a little quote. He says, "Okay, so uh, Heaven Tonight is my favorite album. Period. It's the best album I ever did in terms of my work, and I think it's their best album in terms of songs. They were very very easy with me, very flexible, and I would turn to them and say, What do you think about something?' And they would say, 'You're the producer.' So I loved it. I kind of ran away with it, and I was just getting my confidence as a producer. So here here we are early. We always do things, try to do things chronologically here on. Uh, on uh, History in Five Songs. Um, let's see. So, uh, we worked very quickly. They were a brilliant band. Bun E is a human metronome. He's unbelievable. And Tom Peterson was a flawless bass player and strong at a very interesting sound. Robin would do um, do two songs a day, complete harmonies, doubles, you name it. I mean, Robin would come in for one week and do the entire album. He was just amazing. They were great. I loved it. We had a lot of fun. Uh, so he goes on. Um, yeah, it's 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 funny. He goes, uh, well, they did 1.2 million with Dream Police, but the one after that, they went to George Martin. Now, how can I argue with that? The Beatles producer, my God. Uh, I was happy to learn that somebody I held in such high esteem could make an unsuccessful album with a band that I made a hit with. And he laughs. So, so this is a this is a thing with producers. And Tom, uh, you know, rightfully has his backup because he gets a lot of guys denigrating him. But you know, you look back, and these are the records that made the dang band, right? So. So this is Cheap Trick's golden period, and he has a point. George Martin came in. He's the Beatles producer. They made an album that was somewhat of a stiff. I love the album, All Shook Up, I believe it's called. I always always get that mixed up with replacements, All Shook Down. But anyways, and a pretty heavy album, and I love the production on it too. It's it's a really cool album, and, and I, I would almost argue that I like the pr- production even more than these Cheap Trick ones. So, okay, so what do we get with these Cheap Trick ones? We do get a production sound that is very behaved, uh, very mid-rangey, uh, a little bit undynamic on the treble, a little bit undynamic on the bass. Or when, when I say undynamic, what I mean is there's not enough, right? Um, so uh, so that's just a fancy word. Um, but no, uh, 
I, I, I do find them very behaved, and this is kind of like um, like a a, uh, a narrative, a theme in the early Tom Wormer, Worman productions. But you heard his quote, you know, his somewhat uh, Zen quote there about the guitars and the riff, and and you know, so that kind of makes sense because what you're hearing is um, songs that are kind of dominated. It's it's not that they're super heavy; it's just that they're dominated by the guitar riff. So they're dominated by the middle frequencies. Um, but yeah, and and I I like this idea about tailoring the drums to serve the guitar guitar rather than vice versa, which is another way of saying I don't care about good drum sounds very much, and he doesn't get good drum sounds uh, early on, I don't think. So it it really is all about the guitar. Um, okay, so uh, yeah, another thing to mention here, um, uh, a theme that's going to come up. Tony Reale, um, he is the engineer on uh, on this Cheap Trick album, and he's also the engineer on um, on the on the key. Uh, Ted Nugent stuff that that was big for him. So let's go to our second uh, second um, selection here. Take a listen to this. This is Ted Nugent with Weekend Warriors. All right, so um, the funny thing about Ted, I, I wanted to pick a song that um, that that is a little bit that that really proves the point that there's this there's this kind of bad thin Tom Worman sound that we get early on, um, and this is the thinnest album of them all. Uh, but but you know, here we go. He produces uh, "Free for All." And another interesting, he says here, let's see if it's in, in this quote, um, kind of interesting, uh, might be in a different spot, this quote, but, but he does say, uh, somewhere here, um, my least fun albums are following up a hit an, an album where I'm following up a hit. So the first Ted Nugent album, he wasn't, uh, the producer of, but, but it was, it was somewhat of a hit, a pretty big hit, but then free for all is the next one. And it doesn't do quite as good out of the gates. Um, cat scratch fever is massive. Uh, it basically makes Ted's career. It's as most famous album uh and then weekend warriors he does this one and then he's gone again you know in conjunction he's working with um cliff davies the drummer who is no producer he gets a terrible sound for himself and i think he gets a not a great um performance out of himself either lou futterman is in there he's more like an overseer manager kind of guy he's not really a producer either um Let's see what he says about this. So, so uh, Weekend Warriors, he says, I mean, my heart just wasn't in it. I was asked to go to Japan with Cheap Trick, and I couldn't because we were finishing Weekend Warriors, and I didn't think it was good, and I wanted to go to Japan, he laughs. And that's when I said to Ted, I don't think it'd be good if we worked together anymore because this is all sounding the same, but we remained good friends. I just talked to Ted last week. Love, Ted. Um, let's see. I didn't do a lot for Ted in terms of arrangement. I did a lot for Ted in terms of sound and presentation and song structure. So here he is being vague again. And if you're if you're kind of like, you know, saying, putting your hand up and saying, I did a lot for Ted for sound, you didn't do a good job because it doesn't sound very good. But Ted knew exactly what he wanted in terms of parts. He sang all the parts to all his musicians and he told everyone want, what to play. That's pretty cool. So so Ted's Ted's a big part of the Ted Nugent band, right? Um, 
And we walked in the studio, it was really easy for me. I was more quality control than anything else. So again, I don't think he gets an amazing sound out of, out of this stuff. But, um, you know, what can you argue with here? Tom Tom is the guy, you know, you know, get, getting a, a triple, you know, th- three home runs in a row, more or less, with Free For All, Cat Scratch Fever, and Weekend Warriors. These were big albums for Ted. Um, they might even be all platinum, but they're at least all, yeah, I, th- I think they are. I think they're all platinum or double platinum. Um Okay, so um, so yeah, on that note, uh, let's take a break. We'll be right back. All right, back again here on History and Five Songs with Martin Popoff. We are talking about Tom Werman, and I have saucily uh, named this episode Tom Werman and Twisted Sister, but it's not really all about Twisted Sister, but it might be most about Twisted Sister. And again, that's what inspired this episode. Um, I'm going to... No, I'll leave that. I'll, I'll save that for uh, for Twisted. Let's go on to our next one. So here we go. Uh, take a listen to this. This is Motley Crue. You might have heard of them with Looks That Kill. All right, so here we go. Uh, you know, Tom Tom Werman, the Enigma, because basically, um, and this is this is Tom Werman again, kind of proving to you that um, how much did Tom Werman do? I don't really know. What did Tom Werman do? I don't really know. But he basically um, is the producer. He's the Johnny on the spot for a band making their hit albums. He does Shout of the Devil. He does Theater of Pain. He does Girls, Girls, Girls. They're all big albums. Motley Crue's a massive, massive band. Uh, in some part, what part that is, I don't know, to Tom Werman. Now, the guys and crew disparage him later on, and uh, there is lawsuits. There are lawsuits. Tom is claiming that, you know, um, when they started their label, they weren't paying him. He had to sue them. And all of a sudden, Nikki's kind of like, you know, saying derisive things about Tom, blah, blah, blah. Um, but uh, but basically, so Tom is in there making the biggest albums, and early on, um, let's see, what does he say? So there's a quote here, says, they were difficult to make because of their heroin habit. Nicky was a very slow and not, not a very great bass player. He got better as time went on. Tommy was a great drummer. Mick was a very underrated guitar player, and he took me, you know, for, uh, it took forever to get the vocals. Um, uh Vince would try, but he was never prepared. You know, he'd, he'd get one hour sleep and come in and do his vocals. He he would work hard, but he was never prepared. And I did quite a bit of work on those records, especially on Theater of Pain, which would have been a disaster because of the drugs. So essentially, dark, dark period for crew. Um, you know, a lot of heavy drug use going on uh, through this whole period. Um and, you know, I mean, history does not record Theater of Pain or even for that matter, Girls, Girls, Girls as particularly really, really good albums. But they were big albums and there are some choice songs on there. But I want to talk about the sound a little more. I think this is not a Tom Werman sound at all. So basically, I, I don't know if there is a Tom Werman sound, but credit to Tom Werman. Um, essentially, 
Motley Crue gets a really radical sound on here. It's a little bit of that Spencer Proffer Pasha uh, sound, but it's these massive drums, these really coagulated, smoke-choked uh, guitars. Um, really radical, radical production job across these three records. Um, and I think they sound great, but I, like I say, more than anything, uh, what, what I think is cool about them is they sound really different. Um, so, you know, you're almost to the point where you're distracted by the production and, and it's almost good in a way because the songs are kind of simple. There's there's some magnetism that comes from the guys themselves and Vince's voice, but there's also some, some you know, allure or mystique simply because of the production and that's rare on a record and I think you get that across these. Now, now what is kind of interesting, uh, a point I wanted to make earlier about Tony Reale and um, because everybody has great things to say about Tony Reale as an engineer. Engineer, and Jeff Workman is the engineer on the on the Motley Crue stuff, at least certainly this album. Well, yeah, on this album, and then it's Dwayne Barron later on, and he becomes a big producer later as well, but he's the engineer there. So every time you see in the credits, you see a producer and you see an engineer, sometimes those engineers don't have a lot of effect or importance in the job. I mean, usually they do. They kind of are the unsung people of the production credit, essentially. But when you know or when you learn later on that the producer is one of these guys who's just not very technically minded, you know, frankly, anytime a producer says that, I, I kind of think they're an airhead. I mean, this is the one thing they should be doing is they should know all this stuff. And bands, frankly, also they they look more askance at a producer who uh, who who doesn't know the technical side of things and they greatly admire a producer who who gets under the desk or into the board or whatever or or you know is is over there miking up the drums they they have admiration for that because they can see that this this person uh, has some depth some substance to what they're doing um but then again uh, again there are there are producers like you hear of Rick Rubin um I can't remember which one was being discussed um, um, but basically, he would uh, he would go in and you know reject a ton of your songs and say these are the good ones, and you'd come back with another batch, and he'd reject half of them again and say these are your good ones. So that's super important as well. So again, uh, this episode is more like a lesson on producers and the different roles uh, that they could perform. You know, the uh, the other roles that they could perform are babysitter. Um, they can perform a role to make everybody get along in a band that is fighting too much. Um, so, so there's there are there are definitely a lot of roles that producers can do. But but I love w- what this one Motley Crue illustrates, and that's that um, that basically um, you know a producer like Tom Worman or or the producer Tom Worman, let's put it that way, doesn't necessarily have a sound. He kind of had a narrative in the seventies. And again, that's kind of like a boxy, thin, humorless, um, sort of undynamic uh, sound that kind of, uh, you know, crowds around the mid-range. But here he is doing something totally different. Okay, so... um to our next one, uh, this is uh, track number four. Take a listen to this. This is Twisted Sister with I Wanna Rock. Tell me.
All right, so this is why we named the episode this, Tom Werman and Twisted Sister, because this is a big debate. I've interviewed all the Twisted Sister guys repeatedly, and I swear I've heard, you know, three or four different guys tell me about their opinions of working with Tom Werman. And, you know, this industry group, it's funny. You you see kind of like a psychology or dynamic because they're all industry people. They're all basically saying, D, you know, shut the F up. This is the only reason you have a career, how big this album was. They have this one huge album that goes triple platinum, uh, Stay Hungry, um, May 10th, 1983. Um, after that, you know, he works with Dieter Dierks, uh, you know, super famous producer from Scorpions and Accept, and uh, and it's a stiff. And then he does one that uh, that basically, you know, D, D says, oh, well, it was supposed to be a, a solo album, Love is for Suckers. That's kind of a stiff, too. And the ones before, you know, didn't do nearly as big as Stay Hungry either. So, um you know, this is this is where you know my industry buddies get ticked off at D uh, for for saying this stuff, and and J and JJ as well. Now now D definitely has so so. There's this thing that there seems to be this past where where Tom never kind of liked the band, but it, they're in there, and D is kind of like. Um, he really wants it to be his thing. But D, one of D's biggest complaints, well, he has two complaints and so does JJ. One of his biggest complaints is Tom didn't really want to do We're Not Going to Take It and I Want to Rock. And this quote I'm going to tell you basically confirms from Tom that that is kind of true. And they also don't like the sound of the record. Now, this is something I've always found a little bit strange because I don't think the record sounds particularly bad at all. Um, I don't think it has any any kind of egregious day 80s sounds to it. Um, I, I definitely think uh, we're back to the Tom Werman thing where things crowd around the mid-range, but I think it's a big, powerful sound. I don't mind the drum sound on this. Um, I think the sound varies a little across the album, but I think essentially the guitars sound heavy enough, so I don't know why anybody would complain about the guitars. Um, you know, it's a little bit stripped back and simplified, but that's a little bit the, the sound of the times. It's kind of a no-nonsense sound, but it's but it is it is kind of a radical, um, you know, egregious, mid-rangey, very kind of heavy on the guitars sound, which is fine, which is different than the one before it. Uh, you can't stop rock and roll has more of a uh, slightly more of a puffy seventies uh, analog sort of sound, which is fine. But the first one, Under the Blade, also has kind of a radical mid rangey sound. I believe Pete Way is credited as producer on that, right? Um, but uh, you know, and Pete's not a producer, obviously he didn't produce it. But um, so so no, I think um, I think essentially. Um, I have no problems with the sound, so that really bothers me. But yeah, so they so they get to a point where they they want to re-record this album, and and they're and they're you know disparaging Tom all over again, and they put out Still Hungry, uh, which is a re-recording thing, and and usually when bands do that, that's more about publishing money more than anything. But you know, I personally don't think, and and nobody I know thinks it's any great improvement over Stay Hungry. It's a little different. The drums are busier, blah blah blah. But I think Stay Hungry sounds fine. Um, but yeah, so here's what uh, here's what Tom says about uh, Twisted Sister. That was great, a lot of fun. Uh, it was very difficult to get a sound on this band because they didn't know very much about their equipment or their instruments, for that matter. Um, but it was a really nice combination of their raw live approach and my studio approach. And I really regret that D. Snyder didn't use me again. We got along. I got along very well with everybody. D. was a little difficult to get along with. I think the reason he didn't use me is that he didn't want anybody to share credit in the fact that the band finally broke big. Hmm, because he had been working 
working on this band for 10 years. Interesting. And it was his creation. And I think what he wanted to do was move from one producer. And he goes, a lot of bands like to change producers just for that reason, to illustrate the fact that it's the band, not the producer. In my case, unfortunately, I didn't like um, like to point out necessarily because it's bragging, but every band I did, except for Motley Crue, I worked with the bands who had gold and platinum records and seven, uh, let's see, blah, 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 um, their biggest record with me. And when he, when it's sometimes when I stop doing this, it's because I haven't edited myself uh, well enough in these, like these transcripts are a little raw. And when I stopped working with them or when we parted ways, they went directly out of sight. So they, so they have to know that. And with Motley Crue, uh, they happened to get um, get lucky and they went to Bob Rock, who made a brilliant album. It's brilliant. So yeah, so Motley Crue is one of the cases. But Motley Crue, so it's three records. Ted Nugent, three records. Uh, Cheap Trick, I think three records, basically, it adds up to, right? So um, yeah, three records. So... But yeah, with Twisted Sister, they only did the one record, so so there were some problems, and that's pretty interesting, some of those dynamics he mentions there. But he does admit he didn't really want those songs. So here he says, well, maybe I thought they were not very sophisticated songs. However, I'm singing on both of them, so I don't know. He laughs. I'm on the chorus on both of them. I play percussion on both of them. So I did the best job on them once we did them. I'm not saying that I'm the number one song arbiter. So here he is admitting that a pretty important role in the band if you're if you're not the engineer producer you should be good at this right so what is tom Worman good at we're not sure um but maybe i didn't want to do them because basically they're nursery rhymes put to music he sings yeah 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 you know i probably said this is below me i don't need to do this s-h-i-t you know the reason i did twisted sisters because doug morris who i have uh let's see he called me at home and said i've got I've got a band that sells in Europe, but we haven't been able to crack the market here. You're the only producer who can do this. So as the president of Atlantic Records, I said, I'll do it. I mean, since he called me, you know, you don't turn down a record company president when they call you personally to do a favor. So I simply flew to Hershey, Pennsylvania to see the band and I said, okay, we're on. And they presented me with the songs and said they wanted to do them. And I may have said, I think the songs are silly. So here he is. Here he is kind of saying that, um, that he didn't want to do them. So D kind of has a good point. Um, he didn't want to do these songs. I guess the band fought to put them on there. And those are the songs. Uh, those, that's the reason the, the record went triple platinum and D and D and the band had had any success at all. You know, the next record, I believe, went gold, but then it, then it was one more, you know, stiff, and then they're over with, and then they've done constant live albums and reissues, and they're, and the re, you know, the Christmas stuff, and, and they've basically been a band, uh, actually, if I think about it now, yeah, they, they never made... They never made another album of studio material. They had this great past of studio stuff, and they put out these Club Days things. Um, but basically, this is a band that, um, you know, it, it's really not great when you see a band do this. I mean, they basically lived on their laurels ad infinitum forever. And D, credit to D. I mean, he he went on and did a lot of other really cool things with his life and made a lot of great music and stuff and did reality TV and everything. I mean, he's had a great career. Um, but yeah, Twisted Sister, essentially, uh, when Tom Werman walked out the door, that it was over for them. So kind of interesting. Um but yeah, my industry, uh, my my industry people have no patience for this attitude. They're basically, um, you know, saying D is totally in the wrong. Shut the f up. This is why you have a house and you have lots of money. It's because of Tom Worman. Um, but D, like I say, D does have a point. Um, 
what else does he say here? Uh, he was comparing. He says, Tom goes, surrender is a single for the ages, but we're not going to take it or I want to rock is not. I mean, how much do you hear them on classic rock radio stations versus surrender or even cat scratch fever, which is no surrender, but still an infectious kind of tune. Pretty interesting, right? So, so basically he's making the point here that, um, you know, surrender is a great classic rock song and these twisted sister things were just cheap kitty songs to get a hit. And I remember when this album came out, I felt that at the time as well. What I loved about Stay Hungry was it was a Peaks and Valleys album. It had some of the heaviest things Twisted Sister had ever done up to this point, and it had some some complete crap like these songs, which I just hated. As I although I like I Wanna Rock was a pretty good song. It was pretty heavy. Um but you know, We're Not Gonna Take It was essentially an original that sounded like Come On, Feel the Noise or Mama, We're All Crazy Now. The Slade covers the Quiet Riot did, right? Um, but um, but I did not hate this record, and I really liked the record before it, and I think Under the Blade is a masterpiece. And there's definitely even some good stuff on the last two Twisted Sister albums. So so not a hater of this band at all. Um, and I love the guys. I love the guys in the uh, the band, but uh, but it's, it's interesting. It's almost like um, D and J they're such New Yorkers with with such sort of A-type personalities that they they like drama, they like mixing it up. Um, so so it's like this controversy. I mean, keeps them in, in the news, I suppose, as well. But uh, but so they have some points, I suppose, as well. Okay. So moving on, our last one here, uh, history and five songs. Take a listen to this. This is Dawkin with Into the Fire. All right, so uh, so to wrap up, I mean, you know, he goes on and does some other things. He does Poison as well. Here's a Dawkin album, and to me, this record is neither here nor there in terms of the production. Sometimes, to me, it sounds super harsh. I mean, it's weird. Production, people hear things different ways. Um, but once you're kind of into it and you're, you're acclimatized to it, um, it's it's okay. I mean, it's it's shrill. It's 80s. It's a little got a little bit of that cocaine ears thing they talk about in the 80s where uh, you kind of lose your hearing from cocaine. Um but uh, you know a lot of drama in this band between um, between Don and between George. But it's funny. I asked I asked him about that. But again, okay. So before I read you this quote, this is basically everybody considers this the greatest Dawkins album of all time. It's their second album. It was a big seller. It gave them a career, right? So the the next one did too, under lock and key and all that. But but this is is basically the album that is considered you know their choice album. And again, you know the secret weapon Jeff Workman is is his engineer. So so Jeff Workman is a big part of these records because he is the guy basically wiring things up and miking things up and, and really getting the actual sound of these records. But again, maybe the sound isn't so great. But 
It is an 80s thing. He says, okay, so I mentioned uh, <laughs> I mentioned George and Don. He says, oh, never mind the George and Don feud, the George and my feud. But yes, Don and George hated each other. But George, my engineer, was a very divisive guy at the time, and he put together a little edited Snoop tape, and he made it sound as though I can't even go into it. But George, at some point, by the way, I, I've written, I think it's maybe 11,000 words. I've, I've got an ebook you can get for like a buck 99 over at Zunior.com. That's where all my ebooks are, the full-length books, the audiobooks, and all these short documents. I've got this short document, um, basically all about tooth and nail. It is hilarious. If you're into ebooks at all, go get it. It's like I say, a buck 99 Canadian. All this stuff is in there, and it's the story of the making of this record is pretty unbelievable. But anyways... But George, at some point, he was suspicious of me all along. And I love George playing. I mean, he was brilliant. He did the Tooth and Nail solo, and it was unbelievable. Uh, unbelievable on that song. That was the best guitar uh, s- solo I ever worked on, bar none. I mean, even Zach Wilde's solo in Rockstar on those things, even that I didn't think was up to George's Tooth and Nail solo. And George did another song while we were working on I said, George, you know, your Tooth and Nail solo was so good because it started at point A and went to point B and wound up at point C, and you took everyone along with you. You know, you actually did an exposition of the theme, and you varied it and you soared and weaved and everything and i said here here you're just playing fast can any anyone can play fast you know maybe not as fast as you but without content your style is not as important and he flipped he flipped he threw his guitar down and he said i'm not playing get the f out of here and i says george you seem pretty angry would you rather hit me would you like to hit me george and that was it and i just said well i can't see we're going to get uh, anywhere here so i went home and i called their manager and i said that's it for me i'm finished i'm finished with this record so they got somebody else in to mix the record i think it was roy and he's talking about roy thomas baker here so i i think roy sir um shares production credit on it but it sounds like he kind of took over and maybe mixed it uh god that was really unpleasant uh george was a maniac don is one don is one of the brains behind the outfit i but i think he's manic depressive but you know he's very good and george just hated ballads that's all they hated alone again they hated it uh so so there you go um but yeah quite quite a drama to this story but here again tom Worman, johnny on the spot on basically the Dawkins album everybody says is their masterpiece um and just a couple things, you know, uh, I just wanted to mention, so yeah, he does a Poison album. I, I think I think Tom, again, just really weird, but Tom actually makes what I think is the best sounding Blue Oyster Cult album, Mirrors. Uh, people say it was poppy. You know, a lot of people, it's a love it or hate it album. A lot of people love it. It's, it's pretty much my favorite Blue Oyster Cult album, but I think it's the one that has the most treble and bass and is the most high fidelity, which you do not expect from Tom Worman from 1979 because he's making these boxy records for Cheap Trick and Molly Hatch and Ted Nugent. So again, why? You know, why Why is this happening? Um, all right, so let's wrap up there. This was another long episode, wasn't it? Um, thanks again for uh, for following along with this. Uh, as I say, this is this is our third episode on a producer, which is kind of cool. Um, so we've got a little trio of them. Go, go back and listen to the Rick Rubin. Go back and listen to the Martin Birch. Um, I'm sure a lot of these things come up. Um, follow us on Facebook. Um, you know, we've got we've got the page for the site. We've got my regular page. For all your book needs, you can go to martinpopoff.com. I'm right now in a big conundrum. I ran out of the first of the Iron Maiden trilogy, but I think I'm going to make some more. I've got about 30 of Holy Smoke, Iron Maiden in the 90s left, and just out is Empire of the Clouds, Iron Maiden in the 2000s. I've got about 140 of those left. The two priest books are in print. Merciful Fate I put back in print. Still got some Saxon. Um, yeah, expecting a shipment of some cool books of mine uh, that I ran out of from Weimar, my publisher in the UK. Uh, let's leave it there. So that is all at martinpopoff.com, PayPal buttons, blah, blah, blah. 
Uh, until uh, until next time, uh, go play some of these great Tom Worman albums and let me know what you think of him as a producer and why you think of him as either a good or bad producer. See you later. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. Spring training is right around the corner, so come for the games and have a ball in Arizona. world-class resorts, unbeatable dining and nightlife, amazing scenery, and endless outdoor adventure. Make your visit unforgettable. Plan your getaway at myspringtraining.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.